Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I invite you to take your Bible with you, please, and find your way to the book of Obadiah. We've been in Obadiah the last several weeks on Wednesday evenings, and we're finding our way back there this evening, the book of Obadiah. There has been a lot of chanting in our streets of late, no justice, no peace, no equity, no stability, all kinds of themes with regard to injustice. Injustice is something that ought to burden the heart of every believer. We're living in an era where it seems a person can commit murder and be incarcerated for months, get a parking ticket and be incarcerated for years. Injustice, we're surrounded by it. And as we open our Bibles this evening to the book of Obadiah, we discover that we serve a God who writes all wrongs. Obadiah, the 15th verse, Obadiah, the 15th verse, to the end of the book, we read, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. They shall drink and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. They shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sherarid, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, most of us are familiar with the song or the hymn that says, this is my Father's world. The last verse of that great hymn says, this is my Father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oh so long, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. I think that theme, this is my father's world, oh, why should my heart be sad, would resonate well in a duet with these last verses of the book of Obadiah. There are some Bible students who believe that some of these last verses formed a hymn. Whether that be the case or not, I'm not entirely sure, but I know this. Any child of Israel would have rejoiced to read these last verses of Obadiah. For in the first verses of Obadiah, God condemns the Edomites. In the last verses of Obadiah, God proclaims a glorious future to Zion, the city of Zion, the children of Israel, that they will reign victoriously. The book of Obadiah, you know by now, is a very short book in the Old Testament. 21 verses. 
just over 600 words. It's a very brief book in the Old Testament. Many believe it to be the least known book of the Old Testament. We've taken four weeks to look at some of the themes that are developed in these 21 verses, and we surely haven't developed them all. This is a book that's nowhere cited in the New Testament. It's never quoted there, and so it's seldom considered, unfortunately, by New Testament believers. But there is in this book a remarkable message. In Obadiah, we learn that God will right all wrongs in that time that He describes in so many of the prophets as the day of the Lord. So we see the golden rule of the Old Testament in the 15th verse, the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done upon thee, the law of sowing and reaping. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. You'll recall that Obadiah writes about the destruction of Edom. What we haven't discovered yet, and we're about to discover this evening, not only does Obadiah write about the destruction of Edom, Obadiah also writes about the triumph of Israel. Now, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, and the Israelites descended from Esau's twin brother, Jacob. Esau hated Jacob. And he hated Jacob for a reason. Now, it's true that Esau bore a responsibility, not valuing his birthright. He sold his birthright to his brother, for Hebrews reminds us, just a few morsels of bread, a bowl of pottage. In his hunger, he didn't value the things that were eternal. He only valued that which was material. He sold his birthright. But then Jacob came along, and with the counsel of his mother, Jacob stole Esau's blessing. Esau had room to hate his twin brother, Jacob, and he did indeed hate him. The story of Jacob and Esau continues on for generations. Edom would not allow the formerly captive nation of Israel, the Jewish people, when they were coming out of Egypt, Edom would not allow those people to come through their land on the way to Canaan, on the way to the Promised Land. It had been 400 years since Jacob and Esau had their row with one another, and now their progeny, their children have increased. The children of Israel are coming out of Egypt. The children of Esau are there landed in the place called Edom, and they're not letting them drink water. They're not letting them pass by. That rivalry, that hatred would continue until we discover that Edom, the sons of Esau, rejoiced when Jerusalem fell. The psalmist talks about it in Psalm 137, verse 7. We read, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof, O daughter of Babylon, who art thou to be destroyed? Over the generations, when you come to that passage in Psalm 137, it's 586 B.C., it's been literally hundreds of years since Jacob and Esau have died, and yet it continues. Ultimately, the Edomites would be cast out of their high land. They would go down into the lowlands. They would continue as the sons and daughters of Esau. But now, under new rulership, the Jews would require them to be circumcised, and the Jews would require them to worship the God of Israel. 
And the Idumeans, the sons and daughters of Esau, would provide three children who would persecute the sons and daughters of Israel. Who were those three? Well, Herod the Great, an Idumean king, Herod the Great, who would kill the babies in Bethlehem. And then Herod Agrippa and Herod Antipas. Herod Agrippa, who would be responsible for the death of James. Herod Antipas, who would be responsible for the martyrdom of John the Baptist. They were Idumeans. They were people from Esau's line, no longer living in the highlands of Petra. Now they're down in the lowlands. They're under some measure of rule of the Israelites. And yet this continual rivalry and this continual hatred of each other, the Edomites, rather, picture the God-hating world. Edomites hated the Jewish people. Edomites hated the Israelites. Edomites were living for the things of the world, the Israelites for the promises of God. And so while in national form we have a spiritual lesson that's being taught, there are those who are living for the world and there are those who are living for the promises of God. And we discover in the passage to which we've turned this evening that one day God is going to right all wrongs. One day God who will rule will rescue His people. And when our hearts cry out for justice… And when we see round about us things that cause us a great deal of trepidation, we need to remember this book and remember this principle. Take your Bibles for a moment. Put a mark here in Obadiah and come over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want you to see how this principle that God will right all wrongs is not just an Old Testament principle, but it's also something we find clearly in the New Testament. If anyone were asking me what New Testament book lays the best foundation for a pre-tribulational rapture, for the belief that believers, the church, will ascend up into heaven before the tribulation, what New Testament book lays the best foundation to answer that question? I would immediately say 2 Thessalonians. The greatest chapter on that theme, probably 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We won't be looking at that one this evening, but... As those who believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation, we look at chapter 1 and see if we don't see that theme being developed here. You ready? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. Watch it. Seeing it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day 
Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he may be glorified in you and ye in him. What did the Apostle Paul just say? Well, a lot, of course. But the sixth verse, it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, writing to the saints, writing to the persecuted church, writing to the people of Thessalonica who are being persecuted for their faith. God is righteous when He sends tribulation. Now, it's not using the formal term for tribulation here. In other words, it's not specifically speaking of that seven years, but I don't think it's wrong to read that into this passage. It's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. God is going to right all wrongs. And the persecuted people of the church are going to know rest when God sends His wrath upon the world. This morning we began our prayer time as a pastoral staff together, praying for Pastor Kopp, our missionary in Myanmar. He and his wife had traveled from the Chin State of Myanmar. They'd been down in the capital of Yangon, and they're going from there to a different state where ministries are being established. And because of the circumstances in Myanmar right now, all of us should pray that God would give them traveling safety and wisdom. I couldn't help but think as we prayed for them this morning. We know so little of the persecution that other believers are going through. There are those in northern India. Just two weeks ago, I heard of the burning of 40 churches. This is happening around the world. We live in relative tranquility here, and even while we see some of our freedoms eroding, and we get perturbed, and necessarily so, about that, around the world there are so many that those who study the persecution of the church say that the last century saw the loss of more Christian lives than any previous century before. You know, it's easy for us to look back at the time of Nero and say, wow, the Christians had it bad, and they did. Folks, we are harbored here in the United States and seldom really see the trauma that many Christians are going through. Now, God one day is going to right all wrongs. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is agreeing with what we discover back in the book of Obadiah. And when we look at the book of Obadiah, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the fact that God is a God of judgment, and He simultaneously and eternally is a God of mercy. Psalm 33 and verse 5 says, He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Simultaneous, our God can mete out judgment upon the unrighteous, and let His mercy be seen to those who love Him. Simultaneously, our God can judge the wicked and give His grace to the undeserving. Spurgeon said it this way, when God comes out to punish His enemies, He also comes to bless His friends. He's a God of judgment and a God of mercy. The first verses of the book of Obadiah are filled with judgment. God will destroy Edom. The progeny of Esau, Obadiah prophesied against Edom when Edom was prospering, when Edom was powerful. 
And no doubt the people of Israel would have thought, with regard to Obadiah, this one whose name means the servant of Jehovah, how could this be? The Edomites are the superpower of their day, but Obadiah was prophesying against the Edomites. The Edomites were perched along the king's highway. They were living in the clefts of the rocks, so to speak, and God promised that he would bring them down. Verse 4, to Edom, though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. And why would God bring this judgment upon the Edomites? Lessons for all of us to learn. God brings this judgment upon the Edomites because of their pride. Verse 3, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? God hates pride. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Number one, a proud look. And God promises that pride will always lead to destruction. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, only by pride cometh destruction. And the Edomites were proud of their strategic position. They were the superpower of the day. And the Edomites were proud of their precocious people. Verse 8, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? And understanding out of the Mount Esau, much like our nation today, The Edomites were in their day the superpower of the world. They lived along the king's highway. They had the clefts of the the mountains to protect them and a narrow passageway to get to them. They had all they needed and felt like no one could ever bring them down. God looked down on them and said, your pride is going to bring you down. Pride is going to be judged. And when I read this, and as we've applied it in recent weeks, we ought to, with tender hearts, pray for our nation. We've had the blessing of this vast country, the blessing of the protection of an ocean on each side, the protection of the Eisenhower highways that have gone through crisscrossing our country so that we can get armaments from one side to another. Greatest blessing, the blessing of heroic, brave, individuals who have been willing to serve with their lives to protect our freedoms. When we see our culture eroding and we see other superpowers arising, one needs to wonder, could it be that God is going to judge our nation for its awful pride? But there's another thing that brought the sure judgment of God upon the Edomites, and that is their prejudice. For thy violence, verse 10, against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee. What's another name for Jacob? Jacob had another name. What was his other name? He was called Israel, right? So Jacob, the surplanter, became Israel, prince with God. And God blessed Jacob, Israel, with 12 sons. Jacob, in a very real way, is the father of all Israel. And my, how the Edomites hated Jacob. Esau hates Jacob. And he says, because of thy violence against thy brother, you'll be cut off, verse 10, forever. The Edomite hatred against Israel was a transgenerational, deep hatred. 
The Edomites did not respect the promises that God had given to the Jewish people. God had said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, those that bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. The Edomites thought, not so much. God had promised through Jeremiah that no one would ever obliterate Israel from off the map. Surely as the sun comes out in the morning and the moon at night, when the sun is no longer coming out and the moon no longer shining, even then God says in Jeremiah, I'll no longer put my favor upon Israel. Such promises didn't move the hearts of the Edomites. They were the first anti-Semites. They hated Israel. And so he speaks very specifically about their prejudice in beginning in verse 11, in the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. The Edomites didn't begin the charge that destroyed Jerusalem, but they stood by and they mocked. Thou shouldest not have looked in the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Our fifth grade students came back today from a visit to a local Holocaust museum. They heard of uh, the angel of death, Dr. Megdala. They saw the stories of the Holocaust, and no doubt their hearts were moved by it. And every time such stories of the six million who suffered under the hands of the Nazis in World War II, every time those stories are told, it ought to also be a reminder that there were not only those on the front line, but there, there were those who were passively watching. And God called them to account as well. That's what we learn in this text. Yeah, the Edomites weren't the ones that invaded Jerusalem, but they were there and they were proud in the day of Jerusalem's distress. God says in verse 13, you should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. You should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid, on their, laid hand on their substance in the day of their calamity. It took a while, but the Edomites started participating in sacking the city of Jerusalem and taking the spoils from the afflicted, neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape, neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. So now God says, here's the way it's going to be. The day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it's going to be done to thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head, for as you've drunk up my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually, yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down they shall be as though they had not been. You're going to be obliterated. Your memory is going to be forgotten. But then we come to the 17th verse, and there's an interjection there that needs to be circled. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Here comes the change in this book. And in the change in this book, there's a promise that comes, and that promise is this, that God will restore Israel. But Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possession. Israel's restoration is a great theme in the Scriptures. David Lucen said, the whole bulk of Old Testament prophecy points to the establishment of a kingdom of peace upon earth when the Lord will go forth from Mount Zion. So let's trace that just a couple of times, all right? Ready? Put a mark here in Obadiah. Come back with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Look what we read beginning in verse 1. 
The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow into it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that passage is published in front of the United Nations in lower Manhattan. But the application of that passage is not for the United Nations. The application of that passage is for the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. They will beat their swords into plowshares. And there will be justice that flows where? Out of Mount Zion shall go forth the law, verse 3. The word of the Lord will come out from Jerusalem. This great theme is established throughout the Old Testament. Come to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, and we read beginning in verse 2. Malachi 4 and verse 2, unto you that fear my name, Malachi 4 and verse 2, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts, remember ye the law of Moses my servant. For I have commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. The son of righteousness is going to arise, verse 2, with healing in his wings. And what's going to happen when he comes? He's going to establish the righteousness, even the righteousness that Moses had promised. In contrast to the destruction of Edom, God says he's going to restore the children of Israel. Back in Obadiah, the 17th verse, upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. What's God saying in this passage? There are three wonderful promises that you can underline in verse 17. First, he says he's going to save his people. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And again, another theme that re recurs over and over and over in the Old Testament. The promise of God to deliver Israel is repeated many times. I'm turning to Isaiah chapter 46. and Isaiah 46, I read in verse 13, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be afar off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I put in their mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth, even forever, the Redeemer is going to come out of Zion. The book of Joel, we were there not too long ago, but in the book of Joel, the second chapter and the 32nd verse, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Well, that's the Old Testament, Pastor Phelps. 
And in the Old Testament, it does seem like God is giving all these promises to Israel that he's going to save them. What about the New Testament? Romans chapter 11. The Bible says all Israel will be saved. God still has a plan for national Israel. Well, how many of them will be saved? Anybody know? So Israel is going to go into the tribulation. In fact, I believe the purpose of the tribulation is for Israel. If you're still with me tonight, really important. Daniel hears from God in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. And when God speaks to Daniel in Daniel 9 verse 25, he says, Seventy-sevens are appointed upon thy city and upon thy people. Daniel's city is Jerusalem, Daniel's people Israel. Seventy-sevens are appointed upon thy city and upon thy people. Why? To bring in everlasting righteousness, Daniel says. God brings Israel through the tribulation so that the other side of the tribulation, Israel will know the righteousness of God and enter the millennium. So as Israel goes into the tribulation, how many of the people of Israel will survive the tribulation? All that believe will survive, that's true. But if a, as a national entity, as a people group, numerically, right now there are roughly 7 million Jewish people in Israel, millions also in Manhattan. I don't know the global population of the Jewish people, but I do know this. I know how many are going to survive the tribulation. Come with me to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament. The book of Zechariah tells us exactly how many are going to survive the tribulation. The book of Zechariah, the 14th chapter. We'll start with verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go forth into captivity. The residue of people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And we read back in chapter 13 and verse 9, and I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name and I will hear them and I will say it's my people. They shall say the Lord is my God. How many? One-third. One-third of the people of Israel will survive the tribulation. God will save them. All Israel will be saved as a national entity. Not every Jewish person will be saved. Not every Israelite will be saved, but all Israel as a national body will be saved. No one will ever snuff out the national body of Israel. God will save his people. Again, Obadiah says in verse 17, out of Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. He's talking about the sanctifying work that God intends to do. God's ultimate plan for Israel is that his people would be purified. I kept a mark in Zechariah so I can read to you from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness. The Lord of hosts and all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and seed therein. And that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. God is saying he's going to cleanse or sanctify the people of Israel. 
But I want us to focus in on the last little phrase in verse 17 of Obadiah. See that last phrase? It says, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. God is going to allow the people of Israel to be satisfied. Do you know that there are over 180 references to the land of Israel in the Old Testament? Did you know that at least 55 of those references contain an oath of God to give the land to the children of Israel? And here in this passage, Obadiah talks about the new boundaries that are going to be established. So, the Edomites are living in the south of Judah. They have established their great nation. The Israelites can't do anything with them. The Edomites have been laughing when the Babylonians were destroying Jerusalem. Obadiah says, that's, a, that's going to change. Let me just tell you how much that's going to change. I'm going to change the boundaries for you folks. He says, beginning in verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. In other words, all of Israel is going to be strengthened, and they will be a fire against Esau and will burn Esau to stubble. They will kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken it, and they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. The people living in the southern lands, which right now, if you go to Israel today, and go down south toward the area of Edom, <laughs> you'll find it to be a, kind of like you're on the moonscape. There's just nothing there. It's, it's rolling hills. You can't see around. It's, it's a dust bowl. There's nothing there. Not in the day of the millennium. <clears throat> in that day, they shall possess the Mount of Esau. They of the plain of the Philistines will possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, Benjamin shall possess Gilead, <coughs> and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel will possess that of the Canaanites, excuse me. There'll be new leaders <coughs> that will be appointed. It's worse, doesn't it? The water up here. Okay, I think it's partially back. New leaders will be appointed. The Savior shall come up out of Mount Zion to judge. The oh, look at this. Wow. Johnny. Thank you. Matt, he beat you to it. Thank you, Johnny. I owe you. Oh, was it? Oh, Pat, thank you. The salvation shall come up from Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord. He talks about the saviors who are going to come, verse 21. Like the judges of the Old Testament, there are those who are appointed uh, to rule with God over that particular area. And so the book of Obadiah, judgment for Edom, blessing for Zion. And James M M Montgomery Voice, Boyce, who studied the book of Obadiah, a Presbyterian who actually uh, read prophecy literally, praise the Lord, made this statement. This is a great section of the Word of God for Israel. This must be taken literally. It must refer to a period of blessing of God on Israel as yet not seen. Some do not take the words this way. Either they say that the prophecies have been fulfilled by the humble regathering of the nation in Judah after ba the Babylonian exile, or they apply these promises of blessing to the church and view them as being fulfilled spiritually in these days. Says Boyce, I do not see how either of these views is possible. 
Above all, I do not see how the promises can be spiritualized. The only possible way to interpret the first two-thirds of Obadiah is to take the work literally. It deals with a literal nation, a literal period in history, and literal sins. Even the third part foretells a period of literal judgment on Edom, as we have seen. How is it that all of a sudden, between verses 16 and 17, we have to shift gears and say that the last few verses of Obadiah must be spiritualized? I do not see it to be possible. No, we don't spiritualize it. We look forward to it. We look forward to the day when God will right all wrongs. And that's the great theme that's being discovered in these verses of Obadiah. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.